Welcome back to Mind Over Splatter. After a bit of a hiatus, we have returned with a seasonal spectacular. Happy holidays, everyone. We're sliding a special Christmas episode down your chimney. Really wanted to get this out before Christmas. Wanted to make sure you have a little something to entertain yourself with if you're barricaded in a room avoiding your family and your miserable hometown or something. Uh, this is a very splattery Christmas. <laughs> I'm Dylan. Sheldon is here. Hey, Sheldon. I'm here. It's early, so I am drinking a Rockstar nice healthy breakfast. Gotta keep your health up. Yeah, we are recording this early, so we're not going to do the beer thing. I'm drinking a mate beverage. Uh, Will, what are you drinking? I am uh, drinking this obscure beverage called coffee. Um, uh, that fr- comes from the Orient, I think, no? Uh, yeah, it came, it was uh, smuggled at the the bottom lining of the old wood ships. And uh, whatever the rats didn't get, we have the benefit of drinking. But it uh, comes from a uh, from the nation of Nebab, I believe, is on the label. <laughs> uh, yes. So um, what we're going to be doing today, we're not going to be doing a intensely research to deep dive into a particular topic. Uh, this episode, uh, we have plenty of those in our back catalog, if that's your thing. We're going to do something a little more fun as our Christmas special. <laughs> an idea that i'm pretty sure sheldon you came up with this idea right i think i did yeah uh yeah what we've decided to do is that we've each gifted each other in the spirit of giving a movie a horror movie obviously um trying to oh okay (laughs) there might be some objections from sheldon (laughs) uh keeping it a secret from the third person we've uh we've gifted a movie that we uh we know or have assumed or hoped the person we're giving it to has not yet seen we're trying to give each other new movies that we have not yet discovered so uh we're going to unveil the movies that we've gifted each other for christmas and then we're going to of course discuss them we're going to talk about each of these movies so um will why don't you start us off what uh what ended up underneath your christmas tree for this holiday special uh well a couple of real gems honestly and uh by uh sheldon I was gifted the sequel, not remake, it's a proper sequel, to The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Oh, which came up in our Slashers episode. It did. It was definitely one that we both kind of put onto our lists, and mm-hmm. he, he he saved me the effort of uh, getting my hands on it. Just at face value, aesthetically, it, it looks really good. Uh, the editing is very interesting. There's a huge variety of shot types and editing choices it kind of almost seems like the director and editing team wanted to display every single thing that they possibly have ever heard of when it came to (laughs) uh setting something up like the different types of lighting there's a huge variety not to say that it's inconsistent it never like loses its feel and it's interesting in that it's set in 2013 it's very meta in a bit of a way because the the initial film in the 70s was uh, a slasher about this guy who's got kind of a Jason Voorhees style bag over his head, except with two holes. So he's not as scary. The Uh, the scariest version of of Jason. Yeah. With the one hole, as we discussed, the one hole is what helped make it extra scary. The the original film in the 70s was inspired by a true set of murders that happened in the, the Southern U.S., because they show it a lot. There's a whole thing in this film about how the film exists in the realm of this this film, if, if that sentence made sense. Oh, really? Yeah, the movie starts with them airing the, yeah. the movie. Yeah, exactly. They screen oh, it, okay. this town where all these events actually happened within this cinematic universe. That film was made as inspired by the events that happened in this town. So there's kind oh, of I this see. tumbling referential bit kind of reflecting the inspiration for the actual original 70s film. So they're kind of lapping each other with kind of meta references there. The whole thing does start off at the annual screening, but then danger starts to arise when it seems that there's a copycat killer. The Phantom, as they've been dubbed, seems to be back, or at least someone is trying to uh, recreate their legacy. And uh, the reason for that is the whole plot of the film that I can't spoil but it um, 
it makes some interesting choices. And I brought the aesthetics first because one thing that I really noted is it tries very hard, it seems, to look like the 70s, despite the fact that they very clearly label it as 2013. The the wardrobe, the vehicles, like a lot of things in it. There's definitely modern technology and such, but they make a lot of set choices, costume choices, and lighting choices to very much make it look like a film that's in the 70s. Kind of think of like in the non-frightening natural light portions of any Rob Zombie film. Right, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, there's exactly. You immediately get this, you know, burnt orange hue that encompasses the entire thing. Like really trying to kind of recapture the the energy or whatever it is of the whole, the Texarkana setting. It does a good job at that. Although I admit I had to keep like reminding myself like, no, this is not actually in the seventies though. It's trying really hard to look like it is, but there are also moments where they do very smooth transitions into the seventies as they start to get into uh, how the the seventies film got made, at least within the cinematic universe, and how it tied into the killer, and the reasons how it might be tied into the current situation that they're in. Uh, those shots, there's they're beautifully edited, uh, very smooth. It's not lacking in any sort of shocks. It's got uh, some very explicit, both violence and sex. Actually, uh, there's there's one sex scene in particular that I'm convinced is real. Uh, some of the most brutal deaths are not shown in like you see their aftermath so it does that real nice combo you know there's still lots of stabbing but it cuts away in strategic ways it has a way more profound effect if you just see the aftermath of what's happening that's so much more effective i've i've talked about that a few times i always cite things like silence of the lambs is a great example because then you just have to imagine it and try to come up with it in your head that's spookier and it it makes him a more frightening uh villain and it's got a very very interesting cast i was quite surprised like the the young actors i don't know i'm sure they're all in some sort of sweet and sexy wb program at this point in their lives (laughs) the chief deputy in the town is played by gary cole personal favorite of mine love him harvey birdman great dude uh veronica cartwright i mean come on horror legend right there uh Interesting casting of Anthony Anderson as this Texas Ranger called Lone Wolf who comes <laughs> in to investigate it. As much as he comes in as kind of the uh, the strong talking, know-it-all Texas Ranger, everyone answers to me in every part of this town, he honestly doesn't do a whole hell of a lot. And it's more the young people that are figuring out what's going on and the cops aren't really effective at all. They're pretty flaccid. Uh, they don't have any real effect aside from adding to the body count. There's definitely some homage killings in there. Like the, uh, the, the, the famous trombone death there we that go. came up in our, uh, our discussion of the slasher films. The trombone death is, uh, hilarious. It, it makes no sense. It's, <laughs> it's brutal. It's a very upsetting death. They really managed to make you care about each victim seconds before they die. And it's brutal emotionally and uh, and viscerally. It's like sweeter versions of a lot of slasher stereotypes. Like there's sexual things involved in a lot of the deaths. A lot of people are kind of caught in the act. Like even one of the cops, there's a cop who's dispatched. Haha, <laughs> bit of a pun. D- literally during a sexual act. I-, I feel like there's there's a little bit more to unpack about how there is a whole subplot about the church and how the church kind of likes the phantom because more people are going to that church because they're afraid they find out that the preacher's kind of encouraging the fear and really likes that thinks the phantom is doing God's work. There there's a lot of different undercurrents going on, but all in all, mainly it's about the aesthetics. The acting is, is neat. I'm, I'm glad I got it. It was a very fine choice. That's why I gave it to you. Yeah. I knew, uh, I knew it was good. Yep. So I said, you know what? If I like it as much, I'm sure other others will. You're absolutely right. I can see why it would beat. That's other the spirit of giving <laughs> or why I'd be grumpy about the one you sent me. <laughs> well uh, i still don't know what that is <laughs> we'll find out in a second uh should we uh keep the ball rolling you bet yeah okay i'm excited to see what you got yeah yeah well let, let's start off with the one you gave me sheldon hmm. a good pick it's one that i've definitely had on my to watch list uh, but hadn't got around to yet um sheldon sent me stage fright hmm. from uh, 1987 uh, an italian 
uh, giallo slasher movie directed by Michele Suavi or Michael Suavi, his first um, feature film as a director. He worked as an assistant director for uh, some you know, legendary giallo filmmakers, including Lucio Fulci and uh, Aristide Massacchesi, who is better known as Joe D'Amato, the very esteemed and classy gentleman behind such films as Erotic Nights of the Living Dead and Cannibal Porno Holocaust. Which, um, oh. I, I don't know about you guys. I have not seen those movies. but I, um, I have not. I, I, just thinking about them just absolutely makes me wince. Like, <laughs> I'm sure all of us, when we watched the notoriously gruesome, brutal, and disturbing cannibal holocaust, thought, eh, what if it was hornier? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, there's a movie that answers that question. Uh, anyways, but he's better known as a protege of Dario Argento, who's an assistant director with Dario Argento on a number of films. So Stage Fright, I guess, can be seen as the mentee stepping out of the mentor's shadow. Not stepping too far. This is a very Dario Argento-esque movie. And the setup is pretty simple. It's a theater company. It's a stage performance that's being rehearsed with, you know, a couple slight excursions. All takes place within this theater in one night. Uh, This down and out theater crew, everybody seems broke and just desperate for a paycheck. And they all think that the play they're working on fucking sucks, but they're all desperate for a paycheck. And into this mix gets thrown a serial killer who is a former actor, something which I'm a little disappointed never really gets elaborated on, but apparently a former actor who had killed like 16 people somewhere else who ends up locked inside with this cast and crew. The way that it's set up is so good. I love the opening scene. Fantastic. You know, it does the fake out thing where you don't realize you're watching a play at first. We think we're on a, a a night street somewhere and some rundown part of town and some hooker gets herself into a dangerous situation. And suddenly there's a killer on the loose and you know everybody in town starts sticking their heads out the window. What's going on? <laughs> and then a dude in like a black leotard wearing a giant owl head leaps out of the alley and starts doing a bunch of impromptu ballet. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't realize until that point we're watching like a, a theater production. And then somebody dressed as Marilyn Monroe starts playing the saxophone and stuff. And, um... <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> what, wonderful, wonderful way to get introduced to this movie. The, the milieu is great. I love how everybody is so beat down and cynical and sniping at each other it's got a great cast of characters as you would expect in in like an argento-esque uh slasher movie we do have definitely a lot of like gaudy lighting you know characters bathed in red light and stuff and severe shadows it actually makes sense here because we're in a, a theater so we actually get to use stage lighting it's not just purely impressionistic as it is in other argento movies Though, I mean, this isn't the first time we've had that kind of setting in a giallo. Opera was released the same year uh, as this. And um, Lucio Fulci's uh, The Psychic it kind of reminded me of that a little bit, too, just in the sense that you have characters scrambling up in the scaffolding behind the theater and stuff, which is just a great setting. You know, all those those weird scaffoldings you have behind a stage, the things below and above the stage, and the sharp lighting that allows for really cool visuals I was a little surprised they didn't do the whodunit kind of thing with this movie. You know, since you have this robust cast with different people sniping at each other, I'm I'm kind of surprised that the killer wasn't a secret until the end and they didn't let the audience guess who it was. We know from the start it's, it's some serial killer who used to be an actor. So apparently that's why he has this weird obsession with the stage, though that's not elaborated on. So slightly disappointed that the identity of the killer is neither a secret nor explained more. But in terms of like a gaudy, gruesome, exciting Jello slasher movie, it's a fucking good one. Has a lot of really fun visuals. You have to mention the killer wears that owl mask. Oh yeah, the, the entire the, movie. Yeah, then the killer puts on the owl mask after and and wears it. So the killer just has a giant like snowy owl head, like a mascot. His... It looks like a mascot, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, like a giant head, like a mascot yeah. <laughs> head. Yeah, it's not just a mask; it is a huge head. <laughs> that he wears. It, it keeps us continuity. That mask gets significantly worse and worse throughout the movie. Splattered with blood, and like the feathers are falling off. That's true. That is a good attention on the part of the filmmakers. They do have <laughs> yeah. some, some continuity in the way the mask falls apart and gets dirtier. Boy, it's got to be really hard to kill people. Like, not that I'm encouraging it, but geez, you're really setting yourself a bit of a handicap throwing on a giant mascot head. 
It's hard to yeah. hold a conversation, never mind track and murder someone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got to keep those eye holes straight, too. He's, you know, he's just got a couple little tiny eye holes and oh, this yeah. giant thing that is surely wobbling around everywhere. You're practically it's... hyperventilating the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so what gets definitely, them off. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he manages. He manages quite well. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> the cast was pretty good. I especially liked uh, David Brandon, who plays the theater director as a like a really just prickly selfish uh superior asshole the the screenplay is credited to sheila goldberg and luke cooper luke cooper i thought was a little interesting because he's better known as george eastman or his real name luigi montefiore <laughs> uh, he's in a ton of spaghetti westerns as an actor hmm. it was fun for me to discover that that luke cooper was actually him it's my first time watching a movie by suave and i really enjoyed it good yeah, pick. i love that movie so also i wanted to put it on my top 10 slashers you said we shouldn't add the uh, Jallo movies. Yeah, I banned Italian movies just to keep Jallo and, your entire and Slasher be, separate. Your entire list would be Jallo movies. <laughs> well, it, a lot of it would be, and I thought it wouldn't be fair to just colonize the Slasher list with with Jallo you know, movies. Knowing, I knowing, they be kept knowing you like Jallo movies, that's why I sent you one because it's you know what you like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> do you do you want to get this off your chest, Sheldon? It's your turn here. Do you want oh, to bring right. up this movie that seems to be grinding your gears over there? So, um, <laughs> uh, Krampus over there sent me Night of the Bloody Ape. Woo. What the oh, hell sorry, is well. that? <laughs> um, it's like a like a Mexican luchadorian if that's a word oh fuck yeah <laughs> I, why sure did you send like, this to me I'm sure, yeah yeah see if you got you know, a better honest... movie than this i'm gonna be, if you got, if you got a movie that i would actually like from him okay so i almost i do almost now kind of wish i had swapped them <laughs> oh fuck because <laughs> yeah sheldon i think you actually you you would get certainly more of a kick out of the one i sent dylan i think um so maybe it should be reversed. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm I'm still I'm in a, I'm watching it right now because I turned it off earlier. See, I have it on. You can hear the <laughs> the shitty <laughs> shitty fucking sound. Um. Oh fuck it. So it's like a Doctor Frankenstein type thing. The father shoots an ape and tries to bring his or cure his son's leukemia with ape's blood. <laughs> it's worked it, before. So it, it, it doesn't make sense. So uh, the scene where he's trying to put the blood into his son, he's like, no, no, no. His heart won't handle ape's blood. Like he says, like ape's blood is the strongest blood in the world or some bullshit. <laughs> we need the ape's hearts. So he then puts the ape's heart in his son and then his son puts on a ape luchador mask and that's him being an ape i guess <laughs> and then he runs around raping raping women and that's where i'm at it's fucking terrible the editing is so poorly done she shows his face and you can't even see his face just a mask and grunting and then it shows like the woman's panties and i think that's supposed to be him raping her there's some other subplot with they show a lot of women wrestling in here. I don't know, really know what th that purpose is. <laughs> um, made in 1969. I'm seeing. I'm looking this up right now. Also known as the horrible man beast horror esexo. So the operation worked, I guess. <laughs> It brought him back to life and cured leukemia, but now he has... I think it's meant to be his actual face. I don't think he's put on a mask. I know, mean, obviously it, he has... But it's a luchador mask of an ape. He doesn't look like an ape. Right, but I think it's he's meant to have transformed into an ape beast for some reason. Yeah, because he transforms back and forth. <laughs> they get into it because maybe the blood flow to the head isn't good enough, so he can... I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> Sounds awesome. This movie sucks. The one, the one promising thing about this movie is not even the movie. Oh fuck! Something really dumb's happening. The um, 
the Blu-ray you sent me has a reversible cover, and the backside is actually really cool. So I'll look good on my shelf. That's it. Like, the original art for it's pretty cool. It's important that it looks good on your shelf, because it sounds like that's where it's going to stay. <laughs> oh, yeah. It'll, it'll never never be watched again. I mean, it hasn't got watched yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> Like, was it, it labeled it a video nasty or something? Is that what yeah, something, it was right? a very early, like, video nasty. <laughs> and I think part of that is because, like, it's obviously got, like, gory subject matter, like this ape man thing or whatever is on a murder spree but it's i think it's because he also shows like the surgery footage is real so that was real the editing of it is so poorly done they show his son's face and then they'll add in surgery footage of like a heart procedure and back and forth and it doesn't you can tell one is in an actual surgery room with real (laughs) people and then it switches back to his him and his son with his both his hands digging into like I don't know, like a fucking cherry pie or something. It's like this, <laughs> this is so fucking dumb. <laughs> and Will just admitted he has never seen this. <laughs> he had no idea if it was good or bad. He just thought, hey. I think he had a good idea. The bloody- yeah. <laughs> yeah I, of course I had an idea. I was looking for something. Well, uh, it's tricky uh, because, I mean, it was tough you to You know sus- what movies I like now. We've done this many times. Oh, absolutely. I know what movies you like. I sent you one. I assumed you would like. And what? Next Christmas, you're getting Night of the Bloody Ape. <laughs> well, I was going for, it was tricky because like, I know Sheldon, you're like, as much as I've got like a pretty decent collection, you're a far more voracious collector of horror films. I thought, what the hell could you possibly not have? So I went and my, my motivation wasn't so much quality. It was a surefire strong reaction film that you cannot possibly have <laughs> and I mean, in that vein i succeeded it got a strong reaction and you didn't have it so that was that was the best i could strive for because i'm like i don't know like there i just assumed like if you if you like it you got it that was kind of my understanding and it would be tricky to surprise you i'm sure i could and I, I'm sure I will. I certainly will try <laughs> to <laughs> uncover some stuff you haven't uh, haven't witnessed that you'd enjoy. But well, that is like you said, you identified the biggest degree of difficulty with this challenge is that we had to guess which movies that the other pe- person has not seen, yeah. which we've all of us have seen quite a bit of horror movies. Yes. So it's, it's, it's pretty difficult <laughs> to try to guess one that the other person has not seen. Yeah. I'm shocked that we, I think we had a perfect score as far as we I can did, tell. Yeah. I'm, you know, kind of spoiling things here, but, but not really. I think we all succeeded, which I think is unbelievable. A Christmas miracle. Some might mm-hmm. say. I, I totally think so. I think that was a real, I was genuinely, well, not no, not so much nervous about Bloody Apes. That was a surefire. <laughs> that was coming out of the cold blue. No one, no one saw that coming. Nope. But uh, yeah, Dylan's yours. I wasn't sure. I thought there was. Yeah, a chance I, I was. There. I wasn't sure about. Uh, well, for either of my picks for you guys, and uh, I think the, the I was definitely ape fist pumping to myself when I found that I got the right. <laughs> he just stole a child. Now he's climbing a building. <laughs> oh, he's gonna do a little little. Oh, got some calling action going. God. Uh. <laughs> Okay, maybe we should move on before we find out what the ape man does to that child. Okay, I'll keep you updated. <laughs> if I have to sit through this, you're gonna be updated. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. Let's up. let's let's swing back to Will. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm excited uh, about this one. Okay, so we you get to well reveal which movie I gave you. Yes. So, going back to everybody's favorite country, Italia, it is the Vampire and the Ballerina. Italian horror film from uh, 1960, so filmed in the 50s, so we're we're going way back here. And uh, it's a lovely, very gothic uh, horror film, very much, you can tell, inspired by the initial Christopher Lee Dracula and kind of getting in there early before Hammer releases too many more. It's a very interesting plot of dueling vampires, as it were. We have this very interesting setting. The title is uh, certainly misleading. I saw Vampire in the Ballerina and I thought, oh, maybe it might be a Suspiria type thing where, you know, there's a vampire terrorizing a, um, a ballet school. It's close. There is a dance school, but it's definitely not ballet. 
it's this sassy 60s jazz dance school <laughs> yeah. that gets cut to somewhat arbitrarily <laughs> throughout the film. <laughs> I'm not condemning that. It makes it very interesting. Like there'll be this countess in these uh, in this elaborate outfit. She's in a castle. There's people walking around with torches. Very classic gothic vampire horror, black and white type of aesthetic and scenario and maison-ci. But then it'll cut back to the school and you've got, it's like, all right, let's, let's show them what you learned. And then their dance routines are practically consisting of them starting by like tilting their hips while with a cigarette <laughs> leaning on a mantelpiece and then like doing random, like slow high kicks and then going to, you know, big jazzy choreographed scenes. This is not high art dancing. This isn't even like really contemporary dance. It's just jazz. <laughs> and it's kind of hilarious. My favorite bit is when like, I don't know, somebody says something about a vampire and the dude with broad shoulders and a mustache just bursts into the scene. Vampires, <laughs> sensual, mysterious, it's perfect, goes to a piano. Let's go, girls. <laughs> they just um, apparently improvise a vampire themed yep. interpretive dance. Absolutely. And then when they're done, they're like, okay, back to the plot. <laughs> Yeah, I think that would be, uh, oh, was that Herman or was that Luca? It might have been Luca, the uh, the dance instructor who, uh, he's never heard of the top three buttons to his shirts. Those are, <laughs> those are more mythic to him than vampires themselves. <laughs> it is but, you know, his, his open chest and his mustache, and that is all he needs. That is his life. I guess they all kind of live there or they're staying there. They go and they have these like picnic dates out by this uh, lake and it's beautiful out exteriors. And that's how they stumble across this castle that they believe to be abandoned. But all the while there's these vampires going around and it is interesting in that there's this duel between two vampires that are kind of both feasting off of the people that are around there, but also off of each other in a way and they're kind of competing in to make themselves appear less monstrous because as far as vampire trivia goes this might be one of the earliest if not the earliest example of creating a more monstrous beastly visage to this kind of vampire like certainly mixing together like they have the the big cape the uh pre-victorian european uh, outfits but they are he has like this monstrous ugly visage like big canines and it, uh, you know the the monstrous transition like when someone becomes a vampire they become more monstrous and unlike the you know the christopher lee approach where they just get sexier but uh here they're definitely trying to regain their youth but it's through you know the blood of these uh, young dancers or anyone else that's in the village but it's never quite fully uh, revealed well it kind of is and kind of isn't about who is in control because there's this battle between the first vampire you see and also the countess who uh, is revealed to be a vampire although like you know the second you see her in her outfit there's no shock that it's later revealed that she's a vampire i mean she's living in a like what's believed to be abandoned castle she's dressed like she's 300 years old it's very clear She's going to turn out to be a vampire, but, uh, it's, it, yeah, it was, it was re really beautiful looking. Um, the, the random sassy jazz. I was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's go for it. That's, this is, <laughs> that's hilarious. It's fun. There is a bit of cheese to it for sure. Not just in the dance, but to me, the cheesiest moment is when they are having everyone wants to sit and get like basically a bedtime story and be told the legend of the vampires. So the girls gather around and one in particular doesn't sit down. She props herself up. So she's at the very front of the pack, very centered on the camera and puffing her chest out right at the camera lens. And so that's the focus, just waving her chest at the screen as they're trying to lay out the exposition. But it, it, very interesting stuff. I liked the, um, the way that the villains clashed, uh, their sense of competition. Uh, it was a beautiful looking film. I had not seen it before. The filmmaker didn't have too much of a prolific career. Uh, Renato Pulselli, born in 1922, uh, lived a long life, lived to be 84, just passed away in 2006. This was very much his film, wrote it, directed it, followed up with The Vampire of the Opera, but then kind of descended into doing sleazier, low-budget, pornographic type stuff. 
Yeah, which happened to a number of Italian filmmakers in the 70s, I think. It seems, yeah, that there was kind of a, if there's too much competition and you're not exactly knocking it out of the park, well, you still got to make money. I mean, it's a shame because it like anytime that happens, I can't help but compare it to Ed Wood because that was sort of Ed Wood's trajectory, like in order to make ends meet, kind of had to go the sleazy route. A bit of a shame because it seemed like uh, he had a real good eye for, obviously eye for cheese, but there was uh, some really beautifully done gothic bits and uh, and the exteriors, like the, the the natural light bits were really nice. It was a, for a debut film for a, uh, a young director, especially at this era, they had a real good sense of how to make a film that fits right into all the vampire films that led up to this and then the ones that will follow it. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Renato Polselli, about which doesn't seem like there's that much known, uh, did do good work. I agree with you. Um, one shot that stands out for me is there's a shot that's, we don't realize this till after, but it's from the point of view of somebody in a coffin with a, the, a little window cut in the coffin. Oh, yes. Who is presumed to be dead. And we see looking straight up at the tops of trees scrolling by mm-hmm. as the coffin is is being carried. That is is one moment uh, among several that, that really stuck out for me. That's very nice uh, black and white photography. That whole I... scene is really nicely done. I, I'm glad you brought it up because that one uh, is effective. The shots are great. The The point of view is really interesting. But I like even the uh, the contrast of it's the girl. She's the first victim and it's her funeral. And so we're hearing the mourners weep as she's sort of like looking like she's just coming out of a, a sleep. And you see in her face a bit of a, the realization, but also the confusion of like, OK, I'm not dead, but am I like, what is all of this? I'm in a coffin. I can hear my own funeral. It's a very interesting spot to see. There's no like full on like scratching at the coffin panic. The contrast of her still clearly have life while we're hearing like her mother weeping all in black and falling to her knees and the whole funeral procession and getting buried. And then also from that shortly after the the selfishness of the vampires where it's less about vanity, but more about control. It seems they want to be the alpha, the apex And so when this girl revives, like this victim comes back, her casket is pulled open by the vampire and he kills her. Yeah, that was a shocking moment. Yeah, puts a stake through her heart. Exactly, because you assume that it's going to be like the, you know, the Lee films or the early Dracula depictions where it's like, okay, you're going to be like one of my sirens. I'm going to use you to lure people in or you're like, you're going to be with me forever. It's like, no, only I can be this powerful. The the night is mine just takes this humongous tree branch and uh, stabs her through the heart. And like, that's it. Yeah. We don't know why yet at that point. Right. Because we kind of find out later on what the motivations are, which is one of the things I really like about this story. I think this yeah. movie is, is a bit of a hidden gem to me. So I'm really glad you liked it too. Cause I think the story is good. It's surprising. It has weird twists. You don't expect And You kind of explained the end game where you have an old vampire couple. Mm-hmm. They're not like an old vampire couple who've decided to become elder hipsters, like an only lovers left alive, <laughs> just becoming as obnoxiously cool in their musical taste as possible or whatever. No, they're a bickering couple and they've yeah. got a sort of feud that's been going on for who knows how long, but it takes a long time before we finally realize in like the last third of the movie that that's what's actually happening. That's the motivating factor. And I, and I like the way that to me, it's actually about, they're like the main characters. It's about them. We just don't know that till the end yeah. of the movie when we finally realize okay this whole time we've been stumbling into this story of this old couple who's uh fighting between each other and bickering with each other and like killing a lot of people in the process yeah no absolutely it's a very unique type of situation good example with the jim jarmish film there it's not so much about like oh how wild it is to be older and all we've experienced and the world's deteriorating around us while we're not and it's just you know, like, no, I'm the strongest. No, I'm the strongest. <laughs> it's just there is kind of a a certain pettiness and they're selfish creatures. And they both try to enlist other kids in it. And like, you know, he's the one who's been controlling me. You know, she's the one who's been controlling yeah. me. It, it's a- yeah, exactly. The ending fight, like they probably could have been more tactful and got out of that situation if, if they just stopped bickering at each other. Yeah, there was really interesting choices made in it. And I like that a movie that that's so early into the the vampire film chronology can have so many surprises yeah early for an italian vampire movie yeah they're kind of just starting to make vampire movies around that time this would be one of the earliest this is very early because it's from what i understand the christopher lee film was a smash in italy 
Mm-hmm. And they're Which like, was we like just, we got to start or making these things. That just came and, out. Yeah. And that's early into it. Like starting production in 1959. That's very early. And the impromptu jazz ballets are just the cherry on top. Cause yeah, exactly. Cause why not? It like, it still would have been interesting, but it's impossible to find this movie dull. Like when they're getting almost like too much expositions happening, it's like, uh, can you use some jazz? <laughs> Someone sit at the piano. Oh, thank God. <laughs> there they go. Now they're just kicking and thrashing around and who the hell cares why? <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so thank you for that. <laughs> My pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to, to spread the gospel of the vampire and the ballerina. <laughs> So how's the movie going, Sheldon? It's over. Thank oh, God. It's over? Oh, okay. Um, How did it end? Did, so did right... the wrestler defeat the eight men? Yeah, surely it does. I, I think the, I think the wrestlers were killed throughout the movie, but um, the little child was saved. It looked as though he was going to throw the baby off the roof. And then the father... <laughs> like a soccer three Yeah, throw. and there was a bunch of cops down below and aiming guns at him, and the father was on the roof trying to convince him to, you know, give him the baby. He gave him the baby. And then they shot him anyways, and then the father cried, and then the movie ended. This would be a good time to announce, actually, we're doing a spinoff podcast. It's going to be Sheldon live streams Mexican <laughs> horror movies. <laughs> no. <laughs> little tie in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's see what Will's uh, second gift was. Um, so I got a Blu-ray case that I really appreciated because it has uh, that VHS case look to it. They've got some fake stickers on there. Be kind, rewind and stuff. Really nice aesthetic. The movie is from 1983, One Dark Night, uh, which I never seen before, though I did mention it in passing in a previous episode. One Dark Night was the uh, directorial debut. He also co-wrote it of Tom McLaughlin, who uh wrote and directed Friday the 13th part six, Jason lives. Oh, a good one. Mm-hmm. And uh, also was one of the guys in the inside out bear suit in prophecy. So that, nice. <laughs> I think he's come up in two of our last three episodes for that reason. Awesome. Um, when I said that in our episode about the Friday the 13th movies, I, I was kind of burying the lead there. Cause I looked a little bit more into Tom McLaughlin's history and man, this guy has a, had, had a really fun Hollywood life considering he doesn't have like a ton of movies to his name. He started out by studying to be a mime under Marcel Marceau, Ooh. the greatest mime. Wow. And that led to him being discovered by Dick Van Dyke, who had him write for his TV show. And then when he decided that he wanted to get into movie writing, he was mentored by uh, no less a figure than Frank Capra. Good Lord. Yeah, he hadn't even started writing his first movie screenplay yet, and he'd already been mentored by Marcel Marceau of Dick Van Dyke and Frank Capra. That's quite a triumvirate for you. I like how that's the like resume he's starting with, and that leads right to Friday the 13th Part 6. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like For a long time, he, he used his mind resume to do physical acting work in Hollywood movies like he did in Prophecy. In Black Hole, uh, he, he worked on Woody Allen's Sleeper as well. But the first movie that he wrote and directed was One Dark Night in 1983. Apparently he got a million dollars to make this movie from some Mormons. Uh, and it is a, well, how do we describe this movie? It's not quite a zombie movie. It's kind of zombie adjacent. It's a high school horror movie. We have a high school cast, a pretty, a pretty good, entertaining high school cast. The main character is Meg Tilly. Great to see Meg Tilly. Uh, it would have been, I guess, the same year that she was in Psycho 2 as well. Right. who's kind of the good girl who wants to pass an initiation by uh, the sisters, the the cool mean girl club. You know, she wants to get the, the blazer they wear, which I understand. It's a pretty cool blazer, actually. I would probably spend a night in the mausoleum to get the, that blazer. <laughs> uh, they challenge her to spend a night in the mausoleum with the uh, intention of playing some pranks on her, freaking her out. And then parallel to that, we're learning about some mysterious psychic dude who just passed away, or did he, who uh, was said to have telekinesis and his body is in this mausoleum. And we're, <laughs> we're treated to um, a bit of an explanation piecemeal through these, uh, these exposition scenes, which is just his daughter listening to a tape that describes his potential powers. Uh, not the most cinematic way to clue the audience <laughs> into that information. It's kind of just being recited to us, but whatever. We eventually learned that he has some telekinetic powers that persist beyond the grave. So that leads us to a big climax involving 
corpses that are not necessarily reanimated, just sort of moved around. Corpses that are kind of floated in two people <laughs> and pushed against them, I guess, without seeming to really have any life of their own. But that's the final climax. It takes uh, a long time before we really get the horror movie stuff, which I like. I actually like in slasher movies and other teen horror movies and stuff when it takes a long time to get to the horror movie stuff. Because I like when the filmmakers have... prophecy. Yeah, I like when the filmmakers have the confidence uh, in their characters and the trust in the audience that they can let us just spend time with the characters and enjoy being with them and getting to know them before we finally blow it up and get into the horror shit. And, and One Dark Knight definitely does that because it's mostly just a movie of build up. And then we have an explosion of special effects at the end. It's a pretty cool special effects involving faces peeling apart and getting ripped apart, to, which is pretty fun. Yeah, you can really like smell the formaldehyde in the ending bit. Like those were grotesque corpses yeah yeah so we're, we're explained that this mysterious man was a psychic vampire that was not a vampire movie the the guy who did the voice recording says that uh, there are psychic vampires and many people uh, are psychic vampires and they drain energy from others even if they don't know they're doing it which it, to me sounds a lot like the kind of facebook post you would see written by like some boring girl you went to high school with who's now in a multi-level marketing scheme the characters are pretty good i like the cast one of the sisters just walks around with a toothbrush in her mouth all the time, which is fun. <laughs> um, there's a few gags, some comedy cuts, a little hints at the kind of gags that you would see a lot of in Friday the 13th Part 6, which was Tom McLaughlin's second movie. He was Another thing I was learning about him is that they did talk to him about doing Part 7 af- after Part 6, which he didn't do. And... Um, he didn't want to because they didn't see eye to eye. But one concept that he pitched, apparently, was that he wanted to do Jason meets Cheech and Chong. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, my God. What a movie that would have been. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know at one point he would have been stunted by a cloud of smoke. <laughs> that, oh, yeah. <laughs> that stops him in his tracks. Yeah, or just like bonked over the head with a comically huge joint or something. Yeah, and they're just like would have been like, you know. Like, we got to get out of here man yeah but he's grooving check it out man we can just hang out no man we got to get out of here no he, he seems cool man <laughs> they're just debating about whether to run oh fuck i want this movie to exist yeah <laughs> shit i can see it right now what did you they could just riff yeah yeah it's like a teen horror movie from uh, 1983 pretty low budget it's a pretty fun one. Uh, I like the cast, like the way it ends. Had you seen this one before, Will? Or yes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I found it. Oh, I found it interesting. I, it was an interesting movie, and I'm surprised you you skipped over the uh, the leading man of the film, who's not really oh, the leading course. man, but yes. but the the glorious Adam West. Right, Adam West movie. has a role as um, a guy who's some, just kind of hanging out. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just like the husband of the dead guy's daughter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just kind of hangs around and is like, come to bed, will you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's just like, ah, enough of this crap. Yeah. <laughs> He's just kind of criticizing her for listening to these tapes <laughs> that unleash the psychic power of this uh, you know, psychic vampire. <laughs> so a fine role for Mr. West. <laughs> yeah, he gets to be kind of sour and grouchy and he plays sour and grouchy well. And uh, like I mentioned, Big Tilly is the lead. I'm down with that. She's good. Some moments of dialogue are really fun. I like that one point where the lead sister calls, calls somebody a nerdle brain. <laughs> and then the other character goes, nerdle brain. Very nice. <laughs> like really approvingly. So have you seen this one, Sheldon, you nerdle brain? No, it sounds really good though. I wish I had. <laughs> I, I googled the uh, DVD or Blu-ray cover. It looks awesome. Yeah, it's got a fun cover, and it's a good good title too. One Dark Knight, fun title. There you go. I, I owe you a good slasher, Sheldon. <laughs> if it were easier to do, I want to have like you guys swap the movies and then compare your reactions. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling. I don't know. I don't think like as much as on paper it sounds like Dylan might enjoy. The movie. I don't it's know. very hard to enjoy. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I have a lot of patience for like low budget Mexican movies. That's true. That is fair. You are the like you have the most patience for terrible movies. That's we've discovered that. <laughs> Luchador movies in particular. I, I I've seen quite a lot of Santo movies. Yeah, I, I still have a couple Lucha movies kicking around, so it's almost just like, keep them. All right. Yep. <laughs> cool. All right. So we just have one movie that has uh, yet to be unveiled. Um, Sheldon, what did I get you? Okay, you got me. How do you say this director's name? Uh, I'd go with Lucio Fulci. <coughs> Lucio Falchi. So we got... 
we got a Lucio Falchi movie, which, um, yeah, I have a bunch of his movies, and I, I didn't realize they were all of his movies until I Googled his name, and I was like, oh, I actually like this director, because I have, like, his, uh, what do you call it, his Gates of Hell trilogy, City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, uh, Don't Torture a Duckling, which isn't a horror, but it's still pretty pretty good. So yeah, I was, I was surprised I hadn't seen this one, and yeah, now I have. And it's a movie. And it is Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Oh, right. I should name yeah, it. That... Yeah, a lizard in, the, in a woman's skin. Um, I don't know. This is not my cup of tea, this one. Okay. Hmm. I will view it again because I feel I didn't watch it as attentively as I should have. When the reveal happens, I'm just confused of who these people are and why this is a reveal. Anyways, it's a whodunit uh, Jello slasher. I guess not a slasher, just a whodunit murder mystery. I wouldn't consider it horror. It just seemed like a mystery. You wouldn't consider it horror. They were trying to figure out who killed this girl. The entire movie, that was it. It was a murder mystery. Yeah, I mean, there's a decent amount of blood and stabbing. and There was some really strange... Creepy imagery. Some strange imagery, yeah. The paper duck thing flying through the air. I don't know what that was. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As part of the the long, elaborate dream sequence mm-hmm. that the movie opens with, and that we occasionally revisit. And yeah, so the main girl here has like sexual erotic dreams about uh, some other chick who she kills in her sleep, and then in real life, uh, she was killed the exact same way, and they're trying to figure out who killed her. I don't know. I find it hard to follow these Italian whodunits. All the women look the same. All the men look the same. I don't know who the fuck is who. <laughs> Like when a reveal happened, I was like, "Who? who? Who's this? <laughs> like, which which one of these?" I I don't find the characters hard to distinguish, but I do agree it's kind of hard to follow. I think by design, like I think it's it's intentionally overwrought, and uh, there's so many false leads, there's so many like twists and reveals that come to nothing. That I think by design, it's intended to be overwrought and hard mm-hmm. to follow as part of its kind of dreamlike, mysterious vibe. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't hate it, but. When it ended, I kind of wanted to watch again, thinking, oh, I must have missed something. Hmm. There was one cool scene with the dogs that were being worked on, which I also didn't understand. Which is the the most notorious shocker and moment in the movie, I guess, is that when she breaks into a room at a hospital and there's a series of dogs vivisected, alive, suspended, with their chests open and hearts beating and blood being pumped in and out of them. That's notorious because that scene got animal cruelty charges laid against Lucio Fulci, the director who had to appear in court to argue that that was special effects. That they, they that seems like real. an ongoing thing in the 70s of Italian horror. <laughs> yeah. Where someone watches it goes, oh, you killed an animal or you killed a human. All right, we're suing you. Bring him to court. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that and, definitely and happened all the, with all Cannibal the, Holocaust. Yeah, well, they it's, did, but the then, animal, they just, yeah. then they show the, the movie and they're like, dude, are you... Well, what saved it is that Carlo Rambaldi, who did the special effects, a, a great special effects uh, artist who has Oscars for working on Alien and E.T., uh, he brought the props into court and showed up with the prop. And it was like, look, it's a coyote skin with rubber inside it. And, you know, so they dropped the charges when he actually showed them the prop. But yeah, it uh, looked, it, it's a testament to the quality of his work that people oh, it looked really good. thought. It looked, it looked awesome. good. Yeah. The other characters in this movie, there's some hippies. Some, I don't know. <laughs> there's too much. Too much going on. A lot going on. A very stuffed movie. Lots of characters. Lots of plots and themes. Very odd. For the Fulci movies that I've seen, I've seen quite a few. I think it's probably my favorite. If competition would be The Beyond, which I fucking loved as well. Mm-hmm. It's almost structured opposite to The Beyond, I think, which The Beyond starts off a little more pedestrian and then you know ends with you know characters striding off into some mysterious dimension of the dead. Uh, whereas Lizard in a Woman's Skin is more like a decrescendo where it starts off with an insane dream sequence and then gets kind of more pedestrian as it goes along. I think intentionally to the point where the final like thing you hear in the dialogue is like just a tourist boat going down the Thames and being like, yeah, there's some London over there. <laughs> uh, so it's set in London and swing in London, kind of the death of swing in London, which I think is a bit of a theme in the movie, kind of the death of the, the hippie dream because their initial setup Right. Is the main characters are upper class characters who live still pretty rigidly defined lifestyles, and their flat is adjacent to the flat uh, occupied by Julia Durer, who dies at the start, 
who is a hippie who has these crazy hippie orgies in her flat. So we have these two versions of London society in two apartments right next to each other. And what motivates the movie is Carol, the main character's relationship to specifically the woman, Julia, but also that lifestyle that happens there. And uh, it's notable the movie makes a point of pointing out that Carol basically gave up her career. She didn't just give up her career when she married her husband. Her husband literally took the job that was intended for her because her father was a big lawyer and she was supposed to work under him. And then when she married her husband, her husband took the job and she became his housewife while he becomes the lawyer working under her dad and carries on an affair with a secretary under her nose in their house and stuff. So she lives in this rigid world with like extreme sexism and people being put in their place. And then there's this dream of another world next to her, which is all falling apart because the death of the hippie era is, is what very literally happens. But it's also we're seeing this all over the movie where the hippies falling into drugs and stuff. And it's just that sort of dream of freedom is just kind of coming apart and it's about the way the characters are processing that i think in a way that is a, a big motivation i don't know these are the kind of part of the reasons why i find it really really interesting and mm-hmm. yeah i was watching and thinking oh, i dylan probably really likes this movie <laughs> <laughs> um Whenever there's social stuff, and there's a lot of social stuff in this movie, I think it's also helpful to remember that Lucio Fulci was a lifelong communist, too. He's a, he's a product of that post-World War II Italy, where you would have street fights between fascists and communists. Fulci was a, was a really a product of that world and a staunch communist throughout his life. So I think that's something that informs a lot of his movies, especially one like this, which obviously has a lot of like social stuff going on. And all the characters are just like the same nobody's very well there's a lot of like bitterness and a lot of mistrust and scoffing and looking down their noses at each other i don't know i like the cast um florinda balkan plays the lead role jean sorel is the her husband no one knows these people (laughs) (laughs) you're listing names no one knows or cares about (laughs) bunch of italian people who are likely dead now uh, most of them are like English and French, but or, or Swedish in the case of Anita Strindberg. Checkmate. <laughs> if I had a beer, they, I would chalk on it. They are mostly dead now, yeah. <laughs> there was a, a cool chase scene somewhere near the end. Oh, yeah. The, the chase scene just goes on and on. It's fun. They run up the spiraling staircase. Oh, it's they, there's so many oh, settings. Oh, yeah. And then they run from there like through what looks like a church or something through a wall yeah, they go through like a catacombs mm-hmm. they end up behind a giant organ uh, she bursts into a room which is full of bats everywhere they end Those up on bats. a rooftop so, so this movie was made in 1971 yeah so what is earliest did the uh, bat jelly? attacks look better than they did in the fucking movie bats <laughs> uh, again carly rombaldi yeah a uh, great special effects artist like yeah. i was thinking i'm like this whole bat scene is better than the entire 67 minutes of bats <laughs> yeah you're, you're not wrong <laughs> that was a good scene i like that they filmed like the guy chasing her like he was stumbling also he like he tripped a couple times going up the stairs like whether it's intentional or not but wasn't like you know slowly walking and catching up or yeah he wasn't just some efficient yeah killer. Yeah. he was uh like a he guy. was slipping on the marble floor and shit like that that was a cool scene yeah cool pursuit one of the more exaggerated <laughs> pursuits in a jello movie i like the visuals throughout it it looks good no yeah no it looked good i just didn't get the story. <laughs> it went over my head. The title doesn't make any sense. I don't know. No, not at all. It's a line that somebody said. One of the perpetual. The, the hippie dude said it. Yeah, one of the perma-stoned hippies whose and brain doesn't like, work. Whoa, what was that? He yeah. said it? Rewind. Oh, but it's just like a random thing yeah, he says. I don't know. Sense. Maybe it's not random for Fulci. Maybe he has some reason for it. But Maybe. it does come off as kind of a random title. I don't know. Interesting movie. I'll watch it again. It'll go to my Falky collection. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just out of curiosity, what would you say is your favorite Fulci movie that you've, uh, let's just pronounce this name a thousand different ways, uh, that you've uh, seen? The zombie one was good. But which one? He's made like seven zombie movies. Um, well, depending on how you define zombie. But... <laughs> I'll have to, I'll have to look oh, at like, it. Like, like, zombie, uh, like zombie 2. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that right. One. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that that one. one's fun. Or City of the Living Dead. That one's just, so it's, it, it's insane. <laughs> yeah well it's not a traditional zombie movie what you'd think from the title it's crazy 
Yeah, I'm a I'm a really big Lucio Fulci fan. He's got a lot of movies, a good variety of movies. Yeah, he started out more with like spaghetti westerns and stuff. I think this was like the second Giallo he did. He was kind of just starting them, but throughout the seventies made a bunch, and uh, into the eighties started doing a little more zombie ish stuff and uh you know definitely i think a pretty well-known filmmaker but not on the same degree as mario bava or dario argento to me he's uh he's a really really thoughtful interesting director he definitely had a difficult life by the sounds of things both uh like mentally and physically he had a lot of issues he apparently he never got over his wife's suicide in 1969 and had like serious depression and stuff and was a really difficult guy to work with so that he ended up really poor and living alone in a small apartment. And when he, he died in 1996, uh, his funeral costs were paid by Dario Argento. I, I thought that was pretty, pretty mm. nice when I saw that because uh, it seems he didn't have many friends left at that point. Are you um, a Fulci uh, fan, Will? Oh, yeah. I did some uh, uh, Fulci. I had to think of a new way to say his name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've already covered a few. Fulci? The oh, and uh, the New York Great Swedish too. director, Fulci. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some kicking around in the collection. I'm sure some that I, these were one of those directors that I like. Um, when I look at the body work, I realize I've seen more than I initially thought. Yeah, that's, of. that's exactly yeah. what the I name, thought. The I... name always strikes me as one that stood out like in film school coming across. Has this, is this one that you've seen before? Was it in a woman's skin? Uh, you know what? I believe so, but I don't recall it. I think this is one that I saw maybe first or second year, like university. As you were describing it, things were coming back to me. So I know I have seen it, but not recent yeah. enough. Definitely for me trying to recall my favorite jelly, which will definitely be a challenge if we ever get around to doing an all jelly episode is just <laughs> matching the right name to the right one I'm thinking oh, of. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it doesn't help, of course, that often they have multiple names. Like Lizard in a Woman's Skin is also known as Schizoids and Carol. Um, <laughs> Better names. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think Lizard in a Woman's Skin was the best one. That's the translation of the original Italian title. But doesn't, yeah, Stage doesn't Fright was and... also called Deliria and Bloody Bird and Aquarius. Bloody Bird, that's awesome. <laughs> Bloody Bird is, is kind of silly. <laughs> oh, but awesome. no, Stage Fright's the best one because it's kind of a pun. So do you know about the remake they made? Of Stage Fright? Yeah. No, I, I didn't uh, it know It stars Meatloaf. Oh, no way. <laughs> it's All right. awful. It's <laughs> yeah. like 2010 or something like that. Okay, so Meatloaf is just a keep. I remember being really excited about it just because Meatloaf was in it. Yeah. And also loving Stage Fright. And watching this was just like, oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> From what I remember about it, it was an actual musical. Like, they, Oof. they did song and dance, okay. like. As scenes where people were dying and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oi. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think if we were going to choose a winner of who was the best gift giver, I think I know who it is. All right. Tell us. I think Sheldon won. Yeah. Because like Sheldon um, didn't like either of the ones he received. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't. True. Which I didn't is already mind. a notch against both of us. That's a double <laughs> yeah. whammy right there. Will, you cannot win. You have no chance of winning. You sent me a movie you hadn't seen. <laughs> See, I feel like if I flipped it, I might have won. <laughs> Maybe. The, the one Dylan got sounds awesome. Yeah, and I think Dylan wants to watch the ape movie now. So. I, I, I'm very intrigued. <laughs> so, <laughs> damn it. Yeah. See, I should have second-guessed myself and switched it around. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess Sheldon gets the Santa Claus so. title as the, as King, the best gift giver, since, King, since we're both pretty, uh, pretty pleased with yeah. the no, I think he wins. Yeah. Yeah. It's a TKO. We could tell. <laughs> we were knocked out standing. <laughs> we know. We're standing in our corners, and we know what happened. <laughs> that that yeah. changed my mood. I'm very happy with my, <laughs> okay. with my title of King Gift Giver. Aww. King Gift Giver. <laughs> his heart grew three times that day <laughs> <laughs> that's just because of all the energy drinks he's had today <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right well that's uh that's about that i think it's got to be a pretty brisk one yeah but good yeah. in a good way yeah a nice little holiday snack <laughs> groovy <laughs> Well, I'm sure we'll be back again soon with uh, with something probably a little more characteristically in-depth. Uh, who knows what? Who knows when? Uh, <laughs> the bigger question. Merry Christmas, guys. May your season be bright. Have a silent night, but not a deadly night. Thanks, Sheldon. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Keep looking beneath the Christmas tree. <laughs> and up your chimneys. Because he sees you when you're sleeping.
Oh my god.